Gracious God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that even in the midst of the storms of this life, we know that we can rely on you. God, we give you thanks that when even in the darkest and deepest depths of wherever we may find ourselves, your love and grace can break through, can create a way where there is no way. And God, we give you thanks that we can testify to that in what you have done in our, own, in our lives. And so, loving God, we come to you once again with the places that we are hurting, with the places that are not yet with the places that are in need of healing, with the people we love who are suffering, with our joys, our concerns, all that we have. And God, we hand that over to you. In particular, we lift up Kenneth Locke. Uh, he is in the hospital uh, suffering from chemotherapy side effects. And so God, we pray for Kenneth that he may be made whole, that the chemo may do what it needs to do, but the side effects may go away, that he may live a more normal life. We lift up uh, the family of Pat uh, Billick. Uh, Rosemary, uh, Rosemary Hollis's sister, uh, she passed away Friday morning. And so, God, uh, we pray for comfort and peace in the midst of that. We pray for Dorothy. Uh, she is recovering from COVID. And also we pray for Sandra, who is a speaker. We pray uh, for Thomas Comstock's arm. Um, God, we pray for the ongoing coronavirus pandemic and pray that it may be over that all of those who are currently suffering may be made well, and that we as our world may be made whole once again. But God, help us find within ourselves, with your grace moving in us, with your power and strength to continue to step out in faith for you. Loving God, we do not always do as we should do. We sin and fall short of your glory. And God, we pray that you give us again your forgiveness, that next chance, that second chance. And even as we offer that up, we know that there it is, that second chance, that next chance in you. And God, we are deeply thankful for that. But God, may we be your people in all ways and with all that we have to go forth in ministry, to share your love, to be your hands and your feet. In Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. If I should be seated, I invite uh, Pastor Emily to come forward um, and the children to come forward for a message prepared just for them. Oh, thank you very much. As we have a seat, I know, I've, I've got a gift today. i got a bribe today.
I asked you in just a minute when the offering plate came by um, to give back your favorite pumpkin or your favorite toy. Would that be easy or would that be hard? Sometimes hard, right? Well, guess what? In today's scripture story, we are going to learn about a man called the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he asks, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus tells him, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. If you heard Jesus say, go home and sell all your toys and give all the money to the poor and come follow me. Would that be an easy thing or a hard thing? Sometimes hard, right? But sometimes Jesus calls us to do the hard things. And so I'm going to give you the opportunity to do a hard thing today with your pumpkin that you just got. You can choose. If you would like to keep it, you can keep it for yourself. Or if you want to think of someone who might need a pumpkin that you can give it away to, even though that might be hard, I'm going to give you the chance to give it away to that person. Does that sound like a good plan? All right. Okay, guys. Well, let's pray, and then we'll head back to our seats. Will you pray after me as we're praying this morning? All right. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for all of our good gifts. Lord, help us to be always thankful for our many blessings. Help us to be generous. And to give when you call us to give. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. You can head back to your seat. And thank you for my beautiful card. Our scripture reading this morning does indeed come from the 10th chapter of the gospel according to Mark, verses 17 through 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, look, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now and in the age to come houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children in fields with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last 
and the last will be first. See, it's God's good word for us, God's beloved people. Thanks be to God. Amen. So, I, I realized something at some point in my life, that there are certain topics that you are just not supposed to discuss in polite society, right? You are not supposed to talk about politics. You are not supposed to talk about religion. You are not supposed to talk about sex. You are not supposed to talk about money. Well, it turns out I went to college for the first three of those, um, politics, religion, and sexual reproductive health. And then I have a spiritual responsibility to talk to people about money. So apparently just don't take me to dinner parties. I'm worthless. People really hate sermons on giving. They absolutely hate them. They are the, it is a trope in all training of preachers how much congregations do not like sermons on financial giving. In part, it is because pastors hate doing them. Partly, it's just awkward. Partly, it's seldom do people listen. Partly, it is you don't like breaking that social taboo about not talking about money. You'd rather talk about anything else but not about money. But the other part of it is, is congregations definitely hate hearing it. And some of it is, we need money to survive. And so when you hear a sermon on money, you start to wonder, is the preacher messing with my ability to survive? To which I say, fair. But one of the other reasons why congregations hate to hear sermons on giving is we, every single person, I am willing to bet, just about every single person in this room knows what the standard for giving as set forth in the Bible is. It's a tithe. It's 10%. But the average Christian in the United States gives, and this, these statistics are old, gives 2.3%. So that means statistically, not looking at any names, but statistically, everyone sitting in this room is coming into this, this just about everyone is coming into this sermon defensive. Because you know the standard and you know you're not living up to it, and you do not like being reminded of it. Right? People hate sermons on giving. In part, because we're all defensive. We all know that there's a standard. And for a lot of us, we know we are not living up to that. One likes being reminded of that. But friends, the church, the global church, and certainly the church in the United States, faces a spiritual crisis. And I say a spiritual crisis and not a financial crisis, because the church cannot have a financial crisis... A church can only have a spiritual crisis because our money is tied to our spiritual health. And so if the church in the United States is struggling financially, it is not a financial crisis. Finance, finances are easy. This, what we face, is a spiritual crisis. And when churches or a church don't have enough money, it is, in part, a spiritual crisis among those who have spiritually committed themselves to be a part of it with all that we've got, rather than having money being the one thing that we hold back. Also, just looking at the state of donation, charitable donations writ large, the church and every other charitable organization is facing a generational crisis. So the oldest two living generations, uh, the so-called greatest generation, pre-1945, um, and the baby boomers, those folks make up, what's the numbers, 35% of the population 
of the United States are pre-1945 generation um, or the boomers. That generation, those two generations, 35% of the population, 70% of charitable giving, not just to churches, but across the board, comes from those two generations. Now, some of that makes sense. They've had a little more time in life to accumulate wealth uh, than the latter generations. But it is a fundamental imbalance, and it's a fundamental struggle, because if 70% of your money is coming from 30% of your population who is aging um, and slowly fading out, hopefully not for a long time, but, you know, look, time marches on and comes for all of us. Then if you look at the younger two adult generations from when this study was done, this is before Gen Z had reached adulthood is what this study is from. Uh, so millennials and Gen X, 46% of the population, 31% of the giving. Now, I want to zoom in on this a little bit. Let's just look at millennials for a second. So millennials are the largest adult generation present in the United States population. Uh, they represent 26% of the U.S. population. They give 11% of the charitable giving. It's a problem. It's a real, just mathematical problem. The oldest two generations, and this roughly tracks for our church. Not 100%. We are blessed. We have a lot more millennials and Gen Xers than a lot of other churches. That's a blessing. But roughly, as you know, Mary Barnhart and I stare at numbers, Mary will tell you, and I agree with her, that this, Mary, this roughly tracks with our numbers, right? Not exactly, but mas o menos. We're in line with these numbers. For the oldest two generations present in our church give the majority, and the younger two generations present in our church give less than their percentage would say. Now, I understand the world is hard. I understand the economy is hard. I understand the coronavirus pandemic has thrown everything off. We tried to get antibiotics for my baby daughter uh, yesterday. And because the pharmacy was so understaffed, a prescription that had been called in 36 hours previously wasn't filled. I know, I know, the world's weird. And we've got debts and student loans and houses and children. And there's a lot of things that put financial pressure on us that make giving to church, giving to anything, going out to dinner, making it all really difficult. I know. I live that life too. But as we look at the scripture today, as we look at the story of the rich young ruler, I want you to hold the question in the back of your head that you will never have to admit to anyone publicly in this space. Is that what's really going on? Is it really about the economic pressure, the very real economic pressures that you are living on, living under? Or is it something else? Is it something else? You are holding back from God. Only you can answer those questions. But I want that question to be in your mind as we look at this story of the rich young ruler. And the first thing I'm going to say is going to be great news for you. This is not technically a sermon about, this is not technically a scripture about financial giving. This is a scripture about spiritual commitment. This is a, he has a commitment problem, not a financial problem. But it is that Jesus has hit on the thing he is not willing to commit. 
This opens with great praise of him. He comes and he bows down and he shows Jesus reverence and he gives Jesus a title that shows Jesus that this guy knows he's the son of God. This guy has figured it out. He knows who Jesus is, knows he's not just some teacher, that he's the teacher and he wants the wisdom from the teacher. And on top of all of that, like Job from last week, he is really good at following the law. He hadn't killed anybody. That one's not hard. Um, he has not defrauded anybody. He has honored his mother and father much harder, right? Like he has done a lot of the work of the law. This is a good spiritual man who has recognized in Christ, here is the spiritual teacher that I should be learning for. If anyone can tell me what I'm missing in my spiritual life, it's Jesus Christ. Let me bow before him. Great. And so Jesus looks at the guy and has deep affection for him. And that's verses 22. I think it's verses 22 and 23. It's whatever I have pulled. It's 21 and 22. I was real close. I did a different sermon at Springfield today. So I did a sermon on Job and now I'm doing a sermon on Mark. It's a little much. Anyways, verses 21 and 22. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you like one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Jesus certainly doesn't hate this guy. Jesus loves him. Jesus looks on him with love and gives him that last piece. What this guy was holding back wasn't his obedience to the law, wasn't his willing to treat people differently, wasn't his willingness to let his you know, life be impacted. What he was holding onto was his possessions. In Mark's version of the story, he is not identified as rich right off the bat. Uh, in Matthew and Luke, where this story shows up, he's identified as rich in one and as a ruler in another. So this becomes the story of the rich young ruler. Um, in the painting I have, he's a lovely hat. It's beautiful. The peace he is holding back from God in this case, in the case of this guy, is his money. He has a lot of it. When you have a lot of it, you know what a lot of it can do. You don't really want to let that go because you like what a lot of it can do. Or when you have some of it, and you look around, you remember what it was to have none of it. You kind of like what some of it can do. And you want to hold on to it. And so he leaves grieving because Jesus has correctly identified the place where he is spiritually deficient. When Jesus talks to the disciples in the back half of the scripture, Peter's like, yeah, dude, we did this. And Jesus goes essentially, yeah, dude, you did. He doesn't say it here, but Jesus knows mine. Peter, you've got your own problems, but this bit, this is not the thing I need to talk to you about. This is why I say this scripture itself is not really about money. It's about commitment. And what Jesus identifies is the place where that guy, the rich ruler, is not able to fully commit to God. It's the bit he wants to hold on to for himself. And that's why he walks away grieving. For Peter and the disciples, it's not their money. They all walked away from that stuff. Peter had a thriving business with his father. And he just drops his nets 
and joins Christ. Peter, it turns out, uh, is afraid of risking his own skin. Peter will risk his finances all day. If this was a parable for Peter, it would be like, hey, Peter, you really don't want to die, do you? No, I really don't want to die. And that's why Peter betrays Christ um, on the night in which Christ gives himself up for us. All the other disciples, many of the other disciples also, not afraid of losing their finances, afraid of losing their skin. That's why they all scatter. But that's a later sermon when we get closer to Easter about the problems of the disciples. But for this guy, the rich young ruler, this is the place where he's holding back. And that's the meaning behind the very confusing and scary parable um, that comes into this in verses 25 through 27. That one I'm pretty sure I got right. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astonished and said to one another, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but for God, but not for God, for nothing is, for, excuse me, for all things, for God, all things are possible. Preachers love to find ways to water this particular image down. Apparently there was like a gate that was shaped like the eye of a needle and like camels couldn't really fit through it. But like, no, do not water this down. Jesus being deliberately provocative. On our own strength, we can't do any of this. In this case, it's talking about rich people, right? On their own, rich people cannot let go of their wealth. They need God's help to do it, right? That's the, it's impossible on our own. It can be done with God. But we still have to choose to put our eyes on God to make it possible. Because on our own strength, you're darn right, camel, eye of needle, ain't gonna happen. That's why Peter's like, oh my gosh, who can be saved? On our own, none of us. With God, any who wish to put their eyes on God. One of the reasons I frame this around commitment and not just around money is for then people who do not have a lot of money in this life, this becomes really fun. Like, yeah, that stupid rich guy. I'm, yeah, get him. I, I ain't got that. That's Peter's, that's Peter's response. Yeah, I ain't got that problem. But for us in 21st century America, we need to ask ourselves a really fundamental question. Who is rich? What does it mean to be rich in 21st century America? Back when I studied this stuff, which has been a minute, the poverty line in the United States was 19,500 bucks. If you made 19,000, over 19,500 bucks, you were considered not in poverty. So let's use that as a line. 19 grand a year represented, I don't know, 10 years ago, represented poverty in the United States. And for us, that feels poor, right? That's not a whole lot of money to get through a day, to have housing, to have health insurance or health care of any kind, to have food to eat, um, to, you know, clothe and feed your children, right? You know, that's not a lot of money. But there are hundreds of millions of people around the world who live on less than a dollar a day, for whom $19,500 is an astronomical sum they may never see in their entire lives. When I was a traveling weirdo, I used to think of myself as poor. I essentially lived out of a backpack, suitcase, or messenger bag. 
I would occasionally go through periods where I did not own a pillow, uh, was basically like living in a borrowed bunk bed in the poorest neighborhood in South America, got dysentery with everyone else in Kenya, right? Like I was, uh, spent a lot of chunk of my life fairly sick, fairly poor, in some fairly strange corners of the world. And yet I owned a laptop to put in that messenger bag. And I owned a cell phone that could contact my family back home. And I knew that if I got really sick, and I mean really sick, I could buy a plane flight out of Nairobi and be back in Atlanta, Georgia in two days. And the people around me could not. And so I had to reckon with the fact, even though I was an extremely broke graduate student slash missionary who married a teacher, great, we were a real financial success story. <laughs> $19,500 sounded great. I was rich compared to the people I was working alongside. And I had to start to reframe what it meant for me and my finances and re the kingdom of God. Because I can no longer look myself in the eye and say, I am broke because I've seen what actually broke looks like, and it looks a lot different than $19,500 a year. The other thing that the rich young ruler and any of us who have anything need to reckon with is that our resources are not ours. They are God's. We have resources for our own provision, because God cares for us. But your resources and my resources are not yours and are not mine. They are God's. When we give our life to Christ, we give our life in totality to God. Our time, our prayers, our emotional resonance, and our money. It's all of it. It's not, I'm going to give some from column A and some from column B, but I'm going to keep column C over here. That's mine. Don't touch it. That's what the rich young ruler does. That's why he walks away grieving. He's perfectly willing to change his behavior. He's perfectly willing to change how he treats others. He's perfectly willing to change his devotional life. But his bank account's his. God, don't touch it. And so he walks away grieving. The call of Christian discipleship is to give it all away. That doesn't mean die starving in a corner. But it does mean <clears throat> that just as you think of your heart, just as you think of your spiritual gifts, just as you think of your prayers, just as you think of your Sunday morning, your bank account fits into that as well. My bank account fits into that as well. The Christian church faces a spiritual crisis. That if we do not turn around, the Christian church and its witness in the United States will have to begin to back off the way it serves others because it simply will not be able to afford it. I talk to pastors every week who call me to kibitz. It's part of my job. 
And they talk about having to eliminate their church's insurance coverage because they can't afford it. They talk about having to scale back ministries because they can't afford it. And yeah, 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 that's about money. But the story of the rich young ruler is that there is nothing that separates our spiritual life and our financial life and what we do with our time and what we do with our energy. It is all an integrated whole. And so when I say give it all away, when I call on us to give out of the abundance of what God has given us, when I invite us to give more generously than we have previously, it is not just because I got to write a budget in the next three weeks. And our budgets are perpetually behind before there was a coronavirus. And a coronavirus certainly didn't help that. It's not really about that. I'll turn the lights out. I'll turn off the AC. Then you'll... It's about our spiritual commitment to what God is doing in our lives. And what God is doing in this place. And it's about being willing to give it all over to God and let God be the one making those decisions for you. With your heart, with your time, with your life, and with your finances that are a part of all of that. It's not some of A, some of B, but this is mine. It all, when properly ordered, belongs to God. I do not ever want this to be about guilt. God's grace is still in abundance. Whether you give as you should or not, Christ still loves you and so do I. But I want us to consider part of my job as pastor and part of my job in my own life to do the same. I am not I am certainly not a perfect in this regard, better than I used to be, but I used to give nothing. Um, when I thought I was broke, I gave nothing. I don't do that anymore. And this is hard. But this is a part of discipleship. This is a part of who Christ called us to be. So may we, as a church, come together and each of us individually say, yes, I trust you with that. Yes, God. I'm not holding back. Yes, God. I will give from the abundance of what you have given me. So that we may walk away joyful, knowing the kingdom of God is present in this place. You are not left alone to do this. This is the, without God, it's impossible, but with God, it's possible. Turns out we encounter God all the time. Whenever three of us are gathered, two or more of us are gathered, God is present. When we come to the communion table and receive the bread and the juice, God is present. Helping us do these things that look, based on the looks of people's faces, seems impossible. It is impossible. Happened to follow the God of the impossible, who raised the guy from the dead, who made the blind see and the lame walk, 
the deaf hear, set at liberty the oppressed, and unleash the Spirit of God in the world to make all those things possible for all time. Throughout human history, God has spoken to God's people through our ancestors, through the prophets, through the Abrahams, Isaacs, Jacobs, Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, all so that we would know on a fundamental level that God is with us and we are not alone. In the fullness of time, Christ, Christ came in the world. He fed the hungry, healed the sick, ate with sinners, and declared the time had come where God would save God's people. And by the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, he gave birth to the church, unleashed God's grace in the world. And even after he ascended, he promised to be with us always in the power of his word and the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit. And so that is why, on the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took the bread, gave thanks to God, gave it to his disciples and said, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to God, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my blood, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. And so, in remembrance of these God's mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we can offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us. And we can boldly declare the core of our faith that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Loving God, pour out your Holy Spirit in us gathered here. And on these gifts of bread and wine, Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Loving God, make us one with you, one with each other, and one with all the world until Christ comes in final victory, his heavenly banquet. Loving God, through you who made us, through your son who saved us, through your Holy Spirit and your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forever. Amen. And now with the confidence of children of God, let us pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Here at Grace Church, we practice what's called an open table. Um, that's a real simple concept. It means all are welcome to come and receive communion. You don't have to be a member. You don't have to be baptized. You don't, no one had to say anything over you or for you. You just needed that heart that woke you up this morning and said, Hey, I should come to church and encounter God and made it through a 25-minute sermon on giving. That proves <laughs> the Spirit of the Lord is moving in your life. This is an encounter with God's grace. And far be it for any human to stand in the way of the movement of the grace of God. All are welcome at our communion table. I do ask those who are helping serve communion to come forward first.
Christ broken for you. Body of 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 Christ, broken for you. Body of Christ. Body of Christ, broken for you. 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 Body of Christ. Body of Christ, broken for you.
God, we give you thanks for this holy mystery, which you've given yourself to us. Grant that we, by encountering you here, may have the strength to do what seems impossible for us, but we know to be possible in you. In Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen. As we depart with a blessing, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. All we have is from God. By God's power moving in our life, we are meant to give it all back to God. May we find that strength. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Um, and go in peace right out to lunch.